Lorenzo's heart pounded in his chest as he saw his fellow university students, Luca and Alessandro, leave St. Peter's Basilica. 12th century Rome was already a crowded city, but with worshippers spilling out of the Catholic cathedral after mass, it was even more packed with people. A perfect cover-up for what Lorenzo was about to do. He rubbed his chest, pretending to scratch away some itch. His secret package was still there. He spotted Luca and Alessandro cross over the big square. Lorenzo had to hurry up, else he would lose them out of sight. He followed as they walked past the Sistine Chapel, turned left into the Giardini de Vaticani, the Vatican Gardens, and sat on a stone wall for a while, talking. Lorenzo pulled the hood of his robe over his head and picked some flowers, hoping that his disguise wouldn't draw any attention. Finally, he saw Alessandro get up and leave. Luca was without his friend, but still not alone. There were too many people here who would spot the exchange of Lorenzo's valuable package. Once Luca got up, Lorenzo decided to continue to follow him, knowing the longer this pursuit would take, the higher the chances of him getting caught. It was just a couple of minutes later that Luca stopped in front of a statue of Mary, still in the Vatican Gardens. Before he had a chance to kneel down, with his face to the ground as was his custom, Lorenzo caught up with him. Luca? He whispered quietly. Lorenzo? What are you doing here? I overheard a conversation between you and a professor at the university the other day, Lorenzo responded, his voice sounding tense. You were asking questions about purgatory and salvation, correct? Luca looked at Lorenzo suspiciously. I did. Why do you ask? My friend, do you know Jesus? Of course, Luca scoffed. It is in the holy writings of our Roman Catholic Church that Jesus was the son of Saint Mary. Our priests and professors have read from these church writings to us many times. At that, Lorenzo opened his robe, revealing the package he'd been hiding on his chest on top of his heart the entire time. No, I'm asking, do you really know Jesus? Luca looked, squinting his eyes at the papers sticking out of the seams of Lorenzo's clothing. It read, Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It was part of the New Testament, forbidden to be read by anyone but the clergy of the church. Where'd you get that from? said Luca, mouth agape. I don't have much time, said Luca hastily. Take it. He ripped the papers out of his clothes that they had been sewn into, shoved them into Luca's hands, nodded his friend goodbye, and left, never to be seen by Luca again.
your host, Danique Tersmet, and you are listening to the Little Light Studios podcast, a show in which we seek to answer your most challenging Bible questions. The Waldenses were a group of people who revolted against the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy long before Martin Luther was even born. They believed in sola scriptura, living according to the scriptures and the scriptures alone. When the papacy persecuted them, they relocated far into the French and Italian Alps, hiding in caves where they could worship God freely. But they didn't just stay there only to hide their faith under a rock. No, all new generations were trained to be missionaries, even martyrs for Jesus. Young people were sent off to secular universities with the aim to blend in so as to not to be detected and secretly share the scriptures with those who seemed open to the truth. They even sometimes sewed parts of scripture into their clothing where it could not be easily detected. Some got caught and died a martyr's death. Others were able to do the gospel work unnoticed for years. No one ever discovered the mole that had infiltrated their university. The Waldensians truly laid a foundation for the work of the Reformation. In today's day and age, there is still a distinction between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant faith though Protestantism has been slivered up into many different denominations. And unfortunately, many Protestants don't know anything about their history and where their church comes from. Some major Protestant leaders have even apologized to the Pope for the Reformation and tried to reunite with what they call their mother church. The protest is over, they said. But is it? Why is it important for us to know our history? Does the Reformation have any effect on our faith today? And does the Bible have anything to say about this? I'm so excited to be able to ask these questions to today's guest, Adam Ramden. He is the host of the show Lineage Journey, a series on YouTube that goes back in time covering Christian history. He also recently launched a podcast under the same name. I love this quote from one of my favorite Christian authors, which says that we have nothing to fear for the future, except we shall forget the way the Lord has led us in the past. With that being said, let's dive in to today's episode. Dark Ages, I think we use that term quite, maybe quite loosely, I don't know, but it's it's a term that some historians don't like using today just because of the negative connotation of dark, but um, we typically use it to refer to a period of about eight or 900 years from around about 500 AD up until about 1400 AD. The Reformation typically um, in, its, in its full 
full strength we would put in the 1500s or the 16th century so it's kind of like the 900 years before that from around 500 or so to 1400 it's it's often referred to as dark and it's not just a christian terminology because uh, there was very little scientific or cultural advancement during that time literacy was low um there just wasn't major inventions you didn't have the industrialization of the world hadn't happened yet so countries were stagnant in 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 their progression travel science etc and so it was a terminology across across what broad swaths of society as christians we often refer to it as a time period when the bible was not readily available and so not only was you know knowledge on science and culture and the arts and all that kind of stuff and intellectualism wasn't um pursued but knowledge of the bible wasn't allowed and it was because the bible in many countries had been but outlawed, why was it so, outlawed along with so spiritual we, darkness at, during that time in western europe at least you have the time of the holy roman empire and they saw fit that uh the bible should be kept in the latin it should only be interpreted by the priests or people who had studied those languages and it was their job to interpret and contextualize it for the audience but the the idea that the average person could read the Bible and interpret it themselves, they thought was um, was not good. And so in terms of why they did that, I mean, it may be to have more control over society. Maybe they just had a superior complex, etc. But it was felt that the common people couldn't read. Um, they couldn't understand. And in many cases, they didn't read. They didn't go to school. So you have this learned class and you have a, a subclass that don't study at all. And it was just the learned class that could read the scriptures in a foreign language. They hadn't been translated yet. So what would the church look like at the time, especially compared to um, the church in the book of Acts from the Bible? It would have been a lot less dynamic. I mean, I think the church would look pretty stagnant. I mean, if you've got a church where people aren't reading their Bibles, they're not really singing either. Singing wasn't a custom that would take place in in, in, in churches during that time period. So there's no singing. Uh, there's no real preaching, actually. The emphasis of the Catholic Church during that time was not on preaching. It was not on singing. And it, you, you could argue it's not even on praying. The emphasis of the church is on the sacraments. It's on, you know, the the mass. It's on um, praying, you know, praying to the Virgin Mary. And, and things like that. It's not really on what we would some, sometimes say the tangible aspects of Christianity. So I think the Christian church was quite dead. It was quite lifeless. You know, we don't go to church to hear a sermon. We, we're not really singing. We're not praying. We're not being involved in ministry because everyone in the country is of the same religion. So there's there's no one to kind of reach out to. So you don't have active Bible study and you don't have active mission work. And it leads to a a very stagnant experience of of the church and it kind of created a need for a change really so you're talking about a need for a change but obviously uh at some point uh things did change because in today's day and age we have a very different looking church like we have uh access to the bible bible studies actively doing missions so what changed I think there's, yeah, the, the change was gradual. Um, it's in Proverbs where it says you know, that basically the sun shines gradually. It doesn't just come up at once. And I think 
when you think about the Reformation, you think about the unveiling of truth and the revealing of light. It wasn't something that God just dumped on the world straight away, but there, there, there's certain characters that come along and each one peels back one layer of darkness. And then the next one comes along and peels back another layer of darkness and the next one and, and so on. And so you have a, a population that's, you know, I think God has implanted into us a desire for knowledge, a desire to know his will, a desire to learn more about who God is. And so when when that is systematically and intentionally withheld from the people, eventually there's there's a backlash. Eventually there's a desire from people to to know what they're told they shouldn't know. I mean, even today, it's almost like human nature wants to know what we don't know. You know, if you if you tell, I don't know, a bunch of kids like, okay, don't go across the road because you, and they say, why? Well, you can't. But it, immediately we start wondering, well, what is across the road? Let me go and have a look. And, you know, wh why is it so dangerous? And so when the population is told, don't read the Bible, it's dangerous. We can though, but you can't. I think eventually there's, or eventually or initially there's a design, well, why not? You know, why not? And it creates the desire for people, well, if you can read it, why can't I? And so eventually people, you know, there's, there's pockets of believers all over Europe, but eventually there's people that do read it in the Latin. They're blessed by it. And those people say, well, it's not just me that needs to be blessed by this, but maybe we need to translate it and then we can bless even more people because pe not everyone has the access to come to Oxford, Cambridge or the University of Paris and, and learn Latin. So if we translate it into the, the, the common language or the language of the people, so many more people will be able to understand and read the Bible. And so I think that's where it starts, a desire with these early reformers to share the knowledge they're getting access to, the blessings they're having from reading the inspired word, and then deciding that, hey, we want to share it with other people as well. So who are some of these people? Uh, I know I've read a book called The Great Controversy, which talks about some of this, and I would highly, highly recommend any Christian to read it. It's phenomenal. It's called The Great Controversy. Um, but so who are the first people that came came about doing this? Is it the, the Waldenses, or was there another people group before them that did? Uh, you know, did this kind of reform work in the church? Yeah, the Waldenses are a people group that span you know, several hundred years of history, and they did have copies of the Bible um, that they would copy by hand. You can visit some schools that you find in, dot, uh, in the Waldensian Valleys today where they've got a Bible copy table there. And I think that's the one that people typically go to today in Torre Polizzi is just an example of many others who would have dotted the valleys. And so they, they, they would copy the Bible by hand and they would take that Bible when they would go out as missionaries around Europe. And they would take not Bibles, but they would take pages. So the Wadensis did keep uh, uh, the Bible alive in, in the northern Italy where they lived. And there is still today a couple of copies, I think three copies actually, of the Bible that they translated into French. 
And I was actually just at uh, Southern Adventist University. They've got a Bible exhibit there where they've got one of those three remaining copies on exhibit there for another few weeks. It was fascinating to see it. So the Wadensis kept it alive. They translated it to French. That was in, in, in that part of the world. Then in the UK, in England, well, it wouldn't have been the UK then, in England, you had John Wycliffe. He's someone that um, studied in the 1300s, uh, mid 1300s. He studied at Oxford and he, you know, was proficient in the Latin, etc. But he made it his life's goal that he wanted to translate the Bible into the language of, of English. And so he did. He set about, he translated the Latin Vulgate into English. And Ellen White refers to him and other historians do as the morning star of the Reformation because that morning star is the one that appears on the horizon just before you know day breaks and so he translated into the english language he put up with a lot of opposition from rome they wanted to kill him a few times but it was that translation into the english that then kind of his writings traveled um they traveled to bohemia which is modern day czech republic and it was picked up by two reformers there by huss and jerome and and they then kind of got inspired to you know put the bible into their language and preach it in the language there to um to the people there and so Wycliffe is a key a key early one and then a hundred years later in the 1500s you have William Tyndale that translates the further translates the bible into English Martin Luther does a German translation John Calvin as well so it's around the 13 14 1500s that you really have these people that take it on and especially the guys in the 1500s that really benefited by the printing press that was developed in the late 1400s that really kind of provided a technology to mass produce and get these copies far and wide. So I understand that at the time, the Catholic Church was basically in charge, both being the main church and being the main type of government, right? Uh, even kings uh, and princes were under the rulership of the Pope and the Catholic Church. And as you mentioned, the Romans came uh, after after Wycliffe, right? They came after him. They did, yeah, a few times, yeah. Right, right. So um, that gives the listeners kind of an idea already of what it was like to be a reformer in those times or to translate the Bible into other languages that people could understand in those times, you know, not just Latin. But can you go into that a little bit more? Like, how was this perceived by the Roman Catholic Church? Oh, they they hated it. Like, at least in England, I think it was the 1408 Oxford Commission that banned the translation of the Bible. It was, it was considered anathema. It was terrible. So when Wycliffe translated, they, they hated him. They wanted him killed, and they couldn't kill him during his lifetime. So it was actually at the Council of Constance, which was roughly 30 years after his death, that they pronounced him a, a heretic and all the rest and and pronounced his bones needed to be dug up and burned. Like, oh, wow. I mean, how much huh. do you hate someone that you, you you dig up their bones, you burn them and they but they didn't they didn't realize the symbology of what they did because they threw his ashes into the river Swift and. There's that quotation at the end of the chapter in Great Controversy where she says the River Swift flows to the River Avon and the River Avon flows into the Bristol Channel. The Bristol Channel flows into the Irish Sea and the Irish Sea into the into the Atlantic or the Great Sea, I think they call it. And so symbolically, his impact went around the world um, after he died and they couldn't stop it. So they really hated it. And then William Tyndale, at least here in England, he 
translated the Bible into English, but he had to leave the country because it was illegal to translate the Bible into English. He had to live, you know, there's, there's a documentary, a Christian documentary about him that refers to him as God's outlaw, that he's get to live a life as an outlaw. He eventually was hunted down. They found him and they, they strangled and burned him. So to take on the task of translating the Bible was not a task that kind of got you accolades at the time. It was you would be hated by the, the church and the state and very likely killed and lose your life doing so. And it's it's fascinating to think we take the Bible for granted so much today, and yet it came down to us with a heritage of blood, really. So like you said, people gave their lives for the gospel to be shared and for the Bible to be translated and to end up in our hands. And we have our Bibles now and we put it on our nightstand just collecting dust, which is absolutely crazy because... You know, back in the day, people gave their lives for this. That's how much they valued the scriptures. Mm. It was worth dying for. It is. It is. I mean, we take the Bible for granted. We have copies on our phone. We got copies on our shelves. We may not even pick it up and read it. And yet people treasure it so much that they they died to, to pass it on to us. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So does the Bible say anything about this time in Earth's history? Uh, I'm thinking specifically about the seven churches mentioned in Revelation. I think it does, yeah. I think that the Bible, um, well, as well as the seven churches, the Bible in Revelation 12, verses 6, and I think verse 14, talks about a time when the woman, which is a, a, a biblical symbol for the church, would be in the wilderness. And so it does prophesy of a time when the church would be less central, less favored. And so you've got the, the church in the wilderness. But also when you look at the seven churches, you have the church of Ephesus, um, Smyrna, Pergamos, which is probably 100, or sorry, 31 to around um, 530 AD. And then we have the church of Thyatira, which kind of, I believe, is a church that represents the period of the Dark Ages where you've got, um, it's it's not the best church. There's, there's a lot of negative um, comments about that church, and I believe, and the Bible also says that it would reign for three and a half, it, it mentions three and a half days there, which I think is in reference to the 1260-year prophecy, um, which covers 538 to 1798. So you've got this kind of time period where you've got a church of darkness, but at the same time during that, you have pockets of light that come up. Um, some people take Thyatira to 1798. Some people take it to 1517. And there's pros and cons of each interpretation. But I definitely believe, yeah, that, that they're mentioned in, in in those in that church church time period. And then you've got the the ones that come later that talk about how the church came out of the Reformation time and what it looked like then. So what was the church after that, according to Bible prophecy? What was the church like after that? Uh, the next church is Sardis. And Sardis was a, I think if you summarize the churches in one word, Sardis would be summarized as dead. It's just kind of stagnant. And I think, uh, to me, the Thyatira represents the time period where, A, you've got the, the Dark Ages, you've also got the Reformation. And then coming out of that, you've got a dead church, which uh, it's just kind of, it's 
it's kind of stagnant. It hasn't done too much, and it's kind of in this holding phase where it needs to get kick-started. Philadelphia comes later, which is a church on fire, and later this year comes after that. But Sardis is this kind of time period where it's just kind of, I don't know, maybe it's... <laughs> Maybe it's resting on its laurels from the good work that's taken place. Maybe it's just had life killed out of it. But it's, it's this time period where it's not, not doing so well. That's so crazy uh, to think that people were so on fire for the gospel. Like they were willing to lay down their lives for the truth. And then after that, the church just died again. Like they just, they just became dead in their religion and and their walk with God. And I think that that's a really good thing to consider for us in today's day and age, in today's church. I believe, according to Bible prophecy, that we are the last church, the Laodicean church, the seventh church of the seven churches uh, mentioned in Revelation, which is considered the lukewarm church. And, you know, Jesus says that he'd rather have us hot or cold but not lukewarm. We're kind of like half in it, half not. And so I think we can learn a lot from these people, these Christians, these reformers, the churches uh, of the dark ages who were willing to lay down their lives for the truth while we here today are just being comfortable, really. Not really hot or cold. So looking at the scriptures, what should our attitude be you know, in these kind of circumstances where people, where we have the truth, but people want to take it away from us. And if we defend it, uh, they'll literally just want to kill you and destroy the truth. Yeah, I think there's there's good examples in the Bible of how we should stand in those times. I mean, Acts, the book of Acts says we ought to obey God rather than men. Um, and... I think Christianity, at least in Western countries where, you know, where you're from in Holland or in the US or here in England, we're relatively, we have a relatively easy time. I know the church is not booming in, in those countries and, that, and, and I think ease brings its own challenges, the challenge of just lethargy and a challenge of not caring, but we don't have persecution, at least in our countries. There's Christians in other parts of the world that are still getting terrible persecution now, but but, but we're not, and I think, I think that if we ever encounter in in the countries we live or when we travel a situation where we are being asked to sacrifice something or lay down something or, or not believe in something or not do something, we have to live a life of principle. And when we look at the reformers, we see them doing this. They they valued ideas. They valued. Um, a principle more than they valued life itself, and I think we can we can do that. The Bible, um, we should live a life where our our values and what we believe and who we are and the legacy we leave is more important than our life itself. The reformers, kind of all of them, they just they they show that light. They say, well, I'll, I'll rather die than sacrifice my ideas. I'd rather die than sacrifice my belief because the belief and the idea is bigger than me, is bigger than my life. And so, and that's that's a, an attitude, not some attitude. That's that's a it's a very virtuous character characteristic, is a very virtuous principle. And 
and thing to hold on to that, okay, I believe in this thing so much that it's bigger than me and my life is is less important than that. And I think that's something that even today, even though we're not living in quote unquote the time of the Reformation, or we may not even be persecuted, we have to um, we have to treasure what we do know, and and treasure it above any challenge that may come our way. And it may be that God tests us in little ways, but that's really at the core of of what we need to learn. I think from from the Reformation how we can implement things in our time so that if history does repeat itself, if there is another time of crisis coming, that we would have that same value that we we treasure God's word, but we treasure and we treasure the principles of God's word more than we value even our own life. And that's that's easier to say and it's harder to do, but it has to be a decision we make ahead of time that when we when that does happen, we'll stick to it. Amen. I totally agree with you. So what are the chances that will that this will happen again? Does the Bible say anything about that? It does. And I think the chances are, well, it's not so much even a chance. It's it's a fact. The Bible does speak very clearly in the book of Revelation chapter 13. It says that, you know, the time will come where if you don't have the mark of the beast, you cannot buy and sell. And it's quite clear in Revelation 13 that only those who have the mark of the beast, and obviously we're not going into what the mark of the beast is in the, in this um, this um, this podcast. I'm sure um, maybe you've got some resource on your website. I don't, I don't know to go into detail on that, but those that don't have the mark of the beast will not be able to buy and sell. And it goes on to say that if you don't have the mark of the beast, you may be killed. And so that's definitely a time of persecution where if I say I want to resist the mark of the beast, I don't want to receive the mark of the beast, Firstly, I can't buy and sell, so I can't provide for myself or my family. And secondly, I I, I may be killed. Um, Daniel chapter 12 talks about a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. And so we do have in the prophetic books of Daniel and Revelation that do talk about the, uh, the end of the world, they're apocalyptic books. They do discuss this time where people that choose to follow God will not be able to buy, sell. There'll be a time of trouble such as never was. They may even be killed. And so that is is something that is coming again. And as Christians living now in a time of relative peace and, and safety, it's, I think, an opportunity for us to prepare our hearts and prepare our character for the time ahead. But as we do so, we're blessed with sacred history. We're blessed with the stories from the Reformation where we can lean on those stories and be inspired by those stories, which give us a guide as to how how we can live during that time and give us an encouragement that if other people have faced the crisis, gone through it, that we can too. So going back to the Reformation, what are some reformers that you can highlight uh, whose stories we can be encouraged by, inspired by, so that we can learn to do the same when this happens again in our time, this kind of persecution uh, against people who uphold the truth? There's a few of them. I like the story of William Tyndale. He was someone who translated the Bible and he moved across to Belgium, Germany to finish his translation. He was offered to come back to England after he had been captured, but he said, I'll only come back to England if the king authorizes the translation of the Bible into the English language. The king did not authorize the translation and couldn't guarantee that. So he said, okay, I'll stay in prison. And ultimately he died a year later. So it, 
it's like, well, it, I've lived my life for that purpose. I wouldn't mind coming home to England, but I'm not coming home unless you guarantee that the purpose of my life can be fulfilled. And the king wouldn't guarantee the purpose of his life. He says, no, I can't guarantee this. He says, okay, I'll take, my, I'll, I'll take what, whatever you give me. But the principle of my life and the purpose I've lived for is bigger than my life itself. I like the story of Latimer and Ridley and Cramner um, for different, I mean, three Oxford martyrs and two of them died in 1555 and one of them died in 1556. La Latimer Ridley died in 1555. And the issue that they were debating at the time was communion. It, you know, we as Seventh-day Adventists, we have our own understanding as to what we think the issues at the end of the world are. But the issue in, for them in the 1550s was communion. Like, is the bread literally the body of Jesus or is the bread symbolic? That was a life and death issue back then. And they oh, said wow, it's that's crazy. And they, yeah, and they were killed over what we believe in communion. Um, but I like the story of Cranmer as well, because Cranmer was one of them. And then he recanted, actually. He was in prison and he, and he recanted. He said, okay, I'll, I'll recant. But he was kept in prison for another year. And then after being in prison for another year, he had to come back to the church and sign another recantation. And when he came to sign the next recantation, he then, if I summarize what he said, he said, I recant my recantation. So he basically repented of his previous um, change of mind. And then he's taken to the flame and, and he's burned as well. I mean, the, the, but perhaps my favorite story actually is, is from the 1600s, And it's a lady called Marie Durand. She's not a prominent reformer she's not a pastor a preacher a teacher a scholar which most of the reformers were she was just a sister of a brother who became a pastor and in those days it was illegal to be a pastor in southern france and not only would you be hunted but your whole family would be hunted so if you, your, your brother takes a call to the ministry it's a death sentence for the whole family she gets put in prison at the age of 19 and it's different in some ways it, it requires a different level of of determination to be a reformer that's sentenced to death you've got to hold your courage until the flames kill you she was put into prison in this town in southern france and she was in prison for 38 years that's a long time and that's a very long time she was in prison for her 20s her 30s her 40s she didn't get released from prison until she was 56 and every week they would come by and and all she had to do is you know say i recant I, I give up on my beliefs. And she would have been released from prison. But every week for 38 years, she stood firm. And she was what a strong woman. It. It's amazing. And and she wasn't a, and in some ways, I, 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 I resonate with her story more because she wasn't a, a famous person. She wasn't an educated person. She was just a normal, a normal teenager, really, that got put in prison at the age of 19 and held her held her courage through the best years of her life. She she lived the best years of her life in a stone room in southern France. It's it's a it's a sad story and it's also an encouraging story. That is so powerful. Like just just thinking about that, even even we as Christians in in today's day and age, we get distracted with, I don't know, like mobile phones, devices, media, social media 
Netflix, all that kind of stuff. And this lady, instead of wasting her time on that kind of stuff, though obviously she didn't have a mobile phone or whatever, uh, electronic devices in her time, uh, doesn't matter, whatever entertainment she had in her time, instead of wasting her time on that, she decided to live for Jesus. She decided to uh, not recant her faith, which is so powerful. Because just imagine living in a prison cell for a week without anything. And then she did that for so many years. And to think that she was a teenager when she was thrown into prison. It reminds me of the story of Daniel and his friends and how they had access to the riches of the world, you know, being in Babylon, the, the, the greatest nation of their time, the wealthiest nation of their time. Um, and they were willing to cast it all aside and lay it all down, even die for the truth. And they were teenagers. A and then to think that it wasn't something that we would consider a really important matter, right? It's like, oh, just bow down to the statue. Like they could have said to themselves, what does it matter? Look, all our fellow Israelites are doing it. You know, like these important people are doing it. In today's day and age, we could say, look, our head elders doing it, our pastors doing it. Why would we not do it? They obviously know the truth. So just bow down, who cares? But no, they're like, we worship God and God alone. We will not bow down to this, to anyone or anything. So looking at the Reformation, it's, it's a huge part of human history. It's a huge part of Christian history. It's a huge part of the history of the Protestant Church because what a lot of Christians and Protestant Christians don't know is that Protestant, the word Protestant, it comes from the word protest because Christians, Reformed Christians at the time, were protesting against the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church because these teachings of the Roman Catholic Church actually came from paganism. Um, and it seems like a lot of Protestant Christians have kind of lost their identity. Uh, and I think the protest is over, but is it really? Why does it matter that we as Protestant Christians today understand where we come from? I think, well, one of our taglines at Lineage is history shapes identity. And knowing where you come from is, is key because when you understand where you come from, you understand the struggles of your forefathers and you know people that came before you. It it gives you an identity in the present, and I think when we lose our sense of history, when we don't appreciate the struggles of the past, we don't appreciate um, what some of those, for example, what, what were some of the doctrinal issues? What you know, why did people die? You know, what did they lay that their life down for? When we understand where we come from it gives us a sense of where we are today unfortunately i think protestants have like you said they've stopped protesting they they yeah they've kind of stopped and so and and part of the reason why they've stopped is because they say ah oh, well you know it, it, is that issue that deep is it that is it is it worth dying over and let's just talk about what we agree and i'm not saying we should be antagonistic people that just kind of like cause rifts or disagreements on every minor point and there are obviously bigger issues in the bible and smaller issues in the bible but if we remove everything that's distinct 
about the Bible and just say, oh, we just want to focus on the two or three things we agree with. It doesn't leave much left of the Christian faith. And I think a lot of Protestants today, that's what they've done. They've just said, oh, well, you know. And I think in some ways it's it's probably a reaction to um, unhealthy disagreements in the past in some ways. So I think some of it is an honest reaction to churches just fighting each other and 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 it's not so much the issue that they were fighting over that's that's the problem i think it's the the attitude in how they disagreed that causes people to be turned off from what they're arguing about and i think that itself turned people off christianity so now you have a christianity today where people are like okay well let's not disagree because we're not we're not very good at disagreeing and let's just agree on everything um, but no, I think the issues that people died for and fought over in the past, they are still issues because they all share a picture as they all share a piece of a picture of who God is. And when we remove those, we're not left with a very, we're not left with a very clear picture as to who God is. And, and that's part of the problem. We've separated all of those things and we're just left with a Christianity that doesn't have much left. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there that we have so much value in the scriptures, so much value in the word of God. It's definitely worth standing up for. And the reformers showed it. They they clearly believed um, that the scriptures were worth dying for. Do I see it that way? Absolutely. I know I'm not living it that way, but I pray the Lord will help me that someday when I have to make that decision, that I will, and that will not recant my faith. And that's only by the grace of God. So looking at the Reformation and looking at the dark ages that have happened, looking at Bible prophecy and the seven churches of Revelation um, that clearly indicate what happened uh, in different time periods of our Christian church, what is one thing that you want the listeners to take away from this message about the importance of understanding your history as a Protestant and how that history, according to Bible prophecy, is going to be repeated. One thing to take away, and I think for me, it's that the Reformation wasn't a place, it wasn't a person, it wasn't even an event. Uh, the Refor- I, I know we make monuments to the Reformation, we put people on them and whatnot, but really the Reformation wasn't a person. If it wasn't Martin Luther, it would have been someone else. If it wasn't John Wycliffe, it would have been someone else. If it wasn't in England, it would have been France. If it wasn't France, it would have been Belgium or whatever. Like, It's not about the location, it's not about the person. The Reformation was broader, it was, it was the idea. And I think Martin Luther probably summed it up best. It was the idea that an individual, uh, a person, is is able to understand the Bible themselves and accompanied by the Holy Spirit speaking to them through their conscience. And he summed it up best when he stood there in, 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 um, in, we say English in worms, but I'm sure in German it's worms. And when he stood there and he said, um, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. If I was to summarize the Reformation as the one thing that's the most important, it was this idea 
that an individual can read the Bible and their conscience as the Holy Spirit guides them is captive to that scripture. And that idea more than any person, more than any invention, more than any event that took place is really what caught on that you as an individual, as you read the Bible, the Holy Spirit can guide you and he can teach you and you can be taught by God. And that idea is at the root. William Tyndale is the one who said, I will cause the boy who drives the plow. That's the, his that's his illustration of an uneducated person. I'll cause the boy who drives the plow, you know, the farmhand. I'll cause him to know more of the Bible as you do. And he's talking to an educated scholar. It's this idea that anybody, um, anybody who, who can read, can read the Bible and the spirit will guide them and convict them and their conscience will direct them. And I think that that principle of living by conviction it's the same principle that birthed the Adventist Church. You have stories of like Jay and Andrews and, and in Paris Hill, Maine, they find a pamphlet on the Sabbath and their parents reject the pamphlet. But as 14 and 15 year olds, they read the pamphlet and say, we're going to keep the Sabbath. We don't care what, what our family does. We will keep the Sabbath. It's that principle of I've read something in the Bible. I'll live by my convictions and those convictions will continue to guide me. And that's that same principle we can live by today when we read the Bible and, and the Spirit guides us. The, the, the Word and conviction combined is, is the root of the Reformation and that principle still lives on today. I am Danique Tursmet and you are listening to the Little Light Studios podcast. If you like our show, make sure to leave us a comment and a five-star review. Also, make sure to check out our YouTube show, Video Bible Study, in which we seek to answer a Bible question in five minutes or less. And don't forget to give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter.